นโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสะเรื่องที่เห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็นเห็น The abbot of Chitta is pretty much the same length of time that I've been here at Hanum and talking over what works and what doesn't work and how things are changing and evolving. Ajahn Tiradamo, who um, some of you will know, was the abbot here, then Switzerland, then New Zealand. He has a lot of experience. These days, he's retired uh, from abbotting, like Ajahn Sumato, <clears throat> and um, pulled back from. A lot of the the, uh, the duties that come with the job, and he and I were good friends way back in Thailand, thirty eight or nine years ago. So we've been together for a long time, and it's very helpful to be able to to share notes. This task of not just Offering instruction and being part of the translation of Buddhism from the east to the west, but also the task of uh, trying to establish a uh, renunciate monastic community in this um, this super materialistic society of ours, and, and particularly increasingly over the last decade, a, a high-speed, high-tech. Materialistic society, and and that has a big influence. And so, yeah, discussing this and sharing notes with the other senior monks, the other elders, has been very pleasant, very helpful, and um, I'm pleased to have had the chance. And uh, particularly uh, spending time with Ajahn Sumato, those of you who who um, We're aware that he he visited earlier in the year twice, actually, for his birthday in July, and earlier also uh, for the big meeting we had. It was called the International Elders Meeting at at Amrawati in in May, and that uh, that meeting in in July, having good quality time with him, uh, reaffirming our commitment and shared commitment to. To the practice that we have, the teaching that we inherited from Ajahn Chah is a, a real a blessing, a tremendous blessing and, and privilege. Before Ajahn Sumato left, he was saying what a huge privilege it was to be in that position of being actually perpetually frustrated. He didn't want to be the abbot of a monastery. He never wanted to be the abbot of a monastery. Ajahn Chah asked him to do it, or more or less told him to do it. He, uh, Ajahn Chah, was visiting England, and Ajahn Sumato uh, was here, and Ajahn Ananda and Viridama—they were all here. And Ajahn Chah 
came and saw what was going on here and he, he told me, he said, well, you can earn your own living from now on. In other words, you've lived with me for a good number of years and, and uh, I've looked after you and now you can earn your own living. You can stay here. I'm going back to Thailand. Thank you very much. And Ajahn Sumato, having a very strong sense of uh, gratitude to his teacher, Ajahn Chah, of course, didn't complain or resist and did it. But it wasn't what he would have chosen to do and he did acknowledge that it had been an extraordinary strain uh, to continually have to address the endless issues that come up with being the leader of an increasingly large organisation and all these monasteries that he started, six monasteries here in Europe and and one or two in New Zealand and and wherever else. And, but, yeah, the thing I remember was he very genuinely was expressing how grateful he was to have been in this position, that it was an ordeal and... It was intensely frustrating, but he said how what it did was it continually put him in a position where he had to rise above what he would normally have wanted to do. He had to, he had to dig deep. He had to find out what his, his resources were and go beyond what he would have wanted to do. And we all know what it's like to have our desires to get our own way uh, and the people we live with and we all like harmony and, and agreeable circumstances. But what do you do when it's not like that? What do you do when the world is in turmoil? What do you do when the weather is not agreeable? What do you do when, when the electricity goes out? And, and if it goes out at particularly the same time as the gas runs out, what do you do? How do we meet this? This is what invites us to dig deeper. And Ajahn Sumato, as I said, was genuinely expressing his gratitude for having been put in this position. Because being in the abbot, you don't have, there's no out clause for the abbot. Being the abbot of a monastery requires commitment. If there's no commitment, well things might tick over but if there's no commitment, nobody really holding it, nobody really carrying it it means other people have to do it and if there's no consistency and continuity, it becomes like any organisation, if there's no consistency and continuity it can become very difficult and, and so for a monastery to be successful, there does need to be somebody who is committed to holding it and carrying it, so and that requires sacrifice. It means you can't just go when you want to go, where, where you want to go. It's just not an option. And, but that sacrifice is not unfortunate. And so raising it this evening, I like to suggest that when we, as we do, find ourselves in circumstances that are challenging and test us, and we feel frustrated that instead of defaulting to a reaction, that we meet it with mindfulness, which means that we don't jump to conclusions. We meet it with an interest. Is there another way of dealing with this? 
reminds me of when Ajahn Chah uh, did visit this country um, and he'd gone back to Thailand and, and he was discussing limitations or what's going to, you know, what will work, what, what should work well and he said, well, you know, those Westerners, they're all well educated, they're all very intelligent and they all suffer terribly, so Buddhism should do well. But as far as the Sangha is concerned, there's so much affluence there that the monks and nuns won't have to go without anything. And if you don't go without anything, you don't develop. If you always get what you want, you don't develop. He wasn't moralizing, he wasn't making a big deal out of it. He was just pointing out this equation. May ought, may clan, may learn. Basically just a perspective on reality, a wise perspective on reality. If we don't realize the limitation of the approach that we're engaged with, we're not going to be interested to find another approach. And so to be motivated to find another approach, it's actually functional. It's actually beneficial to be living at a level where there's an optimum sense of frustration. I know that sounds absolutely crazy, from a worldly perspective, but from a Dhamma perspective, this is, this is true. Now, we're not saying a maximum level of frustration. We're saying an optimum level of frustration. There's an optimum. Like, I think, well, I've talked before, again, about, about finding the edge, how to keep the edge, how to stay on the edge, how to stay alive, how to stay energetic, how to stay interested in investigating. Because the senses, the body senses, take us in a direction of just how to be comfortable. That's natural as far as the body is concerned. But we know the body is not necessarily terribly clever because just being comfortable, if I'm comfortable, I'm just going to eat all sorts of cookies and I'm not going to do any exercise at all. My cholesterol will be through the roof in no time at all and I'll be in trouble. And what a waste that is. Uh, we've got to somehow find out how to keep ourselves interested in seeing beyond the way things appear to be. Conditions are disagreeable, we'll just run away from the disagreeable circumstances or get rid of the disagreeable circumstances. But is there another way? Is there another way? Yeah. And this is what you know, we're encouraged in our practice, the way of mindfulness, the way of investigation. Don't be fooled by the way things appear to be, as we are over and over again, and see if we can see beyond it, which, of course, was the... The motivation for the Buddha's own enlightenment. You know, old age, sickness and death, well, that's a drag. You know, is that all there is? You know, so he did get a little depressed and disillusioned for a while, but then his interest in seeing beyond it was quickened. And so he embarked on his years of investigation of intense practice until he did realize that which is beyond the way things appear to be on the level of the senses. You know, the way of understanding the way of wisdom. So these um, situations we find ourselves in, which, which, yes, can be challenging, can be frustrating, and if we're not careful, we can just default through our habitual reactions, but we always have a choice. In every situation, until we're dead, or maybe until we're zonked out on medication, which means we can't have mindfulness anymore, up until that point... We always have the opportunity. Just because we're even getting old doesn't mean to say we can't practice. We always have the opportunity to get interested, to bring mindfulness to bear and to investigate what's really going on here. Uh -huh. 
And that uh, brings me to, of course, the, uh, the, the teaching on the calendar page for this month, which I'm supposed to be quoting and reflecting on, and that is uh, the month of October. Uh, as a, those of you that have turned the page on the calendar will have seen where Ajahn Chah is talking about this. He's talking about mindfulness. And he says, whatever virtues have been cultivated are imperfect if lacking in mindfulness. Mindfulness is life. It is a cause for the arising of self-awareness and wisdom. Now, this is, of course, typical of Ajahn Chah's teaching and typical of the Buddha's teaching that whatever, whatever we do, however ostensibly virtuous it might be, if there's not mindfulness, then it's off. It's imperfect. It doesn't mean to say it's not good. It might still be good, but we're not really benefiting as much as we could. You, know, you study the classic teachings on the Eightfold Path and you talk about how essential and how important the place of samadhi is, but there has to be mindfulness. You can have amazing samadhi, in other words, amazing power, amazing concentration, maybe you can even levitate, flap your wings, whatever, do all sorts of amazing psychic tricks... Yeah, but if you haven't got mindfulness, you can end up in big trouble. One of the biggest troublemakers in the history of Buddhism was the Buddha's nephew or cousin. I always get it wrong. Cousin. Thank you, I never know that. The Buddha's cousin, Devadatta, who he was a jhana master. He was a, he was a, he was a jhana gymnast. He had all the tricks. Well, I don't know how many, but he had a lot of the tricks down. But he caused a lot of trouble. Yeah, one of the biggest troublemakers that ever existed because he didn't have mindfulness. So we can get enamored with psychic feats or ability to think and understand and so on, but if there's not mindfulness, we may be even very generous. We may be even very virtuous in keeping precepts, but there's always the risk with keeping moral precepts that we can just be getting more conceited and overly pleased with ourselves. And so whatever our spiritual practice is, whatever our effort might be, the Buddha always wanted us to remember this mindfulness. That Even if we, you know, like you have some good motivation to investigate the suffering of the world, you know, you, you instead of turning away from the television or the newspaper, then you actually look at it and you see what's really going on and how sad it is and investigating with the hope of understanding and think, but if there's not real mindfulness if there's not really well developed mindfulness embodied mindfulness the sorrow of the world can pull us into too much sadness you can get lost in grief there's so many causes for grief around and sadness that if there's not well developed embodied mindfulness again we can lose perspective maybe you've got a job as a as a counsellor, as a therapist, and have compassionate motivation for helping people, but if we're not properly prepared with embodied, strong, mature mindfulness, then you suffer from compassion fatigue. Instead of helping other people, you have a breakdown yourself. It's quite possible. So bringing mindfulness, whatever we into our practice, whatever it might be, and remembering that that's the priority. Mm -hmm.
some people read a little bit about Buddhism and discover the, the Four Noble Truths and the Buddha pointed out that, that uh, desire uh, can make a problem for us. It uh, creates all sorts of suffering. And so they then take a position against desire, try not to have desire which, of course, is not a mindful investigation because wanting to not want is still wanting. We need to get more subtle than that. We need to investigate and see what what is the reality of wanting? What is the reality of having things, the perception of having? Like um, talking about Ajahn Chah and somebody, somebody asked him, what is the biggest difficulty he has with teaching his disciples. And he said, their opinions. I don't know whether he was talking about Westerners. I suspect he was. I think he was talking to Westerners at the time. But who knows? I think Thais are, you know, they're overly educated and opinionated these days and making a lot of trouble for themselves, unfortunately, also. So I'm sure he'd say the same thing, that um, particularly monks that attachment to opinions is, is a real problem. And this is not just new, actually. You know, Buddha himself pointed this out. Uh, that, uh, whereas householders, they fall out with each other, arguing over which is the most delicious meal or the most fun music to go dancing to. So, well, monks, they fall out with each other over views, views and opinions. And so what do you do with that? You're supposed to not have a view? You're supposed to not have opinions, and, and so like, like with desires, you're supposed to not have desires. Well, Ajahn Chah used to tell us, he'd say, well, you've got to have without having. How do you do that? How do you have without having? Sounds crazy. But if we meditate, everybody here who's been meditating for a while will realize that actually we've got a choice. Yeah. When you're, you're sitting and the mind gets a little bit peaceful and and you see a desire comes into the mind, a desire to see somebody. How do we have that desire? If we have it with mindfulness, you can have it in a way whereby it doesn't disturb you. If we have it without mindfulness, then that desire spins off into the last time I saw that person, it was so much fun, we did this and we did that, and if we meet up again, I think I'll send them an email, no, I'll use WhatsApp or whatever, the medium of communication that we might be using, and get caught into, pulled into proliferation. What's the problem? The problem's not the desire to meet that friend. What is the problem? We've got to see this. This is what Ajahn Shah was referring to, have without having. Have, but don't have. Have that desire. I mean, desire teaches us about reality. Teaches us about truth. We don't want to get rid of our desires. So we have the desire, but is it possible to have it in a way whereby we don't suffer? Or even even, uh, irritation. Irritation comes along. Some irritating noise... Our neighbour drives his quad bike up the road. We're sitting in meditation and there's a dung, 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 his, his quad bike going up there and you, you could start thinking, why does he drive his quad bike up at half past six instead of half past seven? 
every night he seems to drive his quad bike by just the time doing puja. I think he's doing it on purpose. That's called having without mindfulness. We can't, you know, stick wax in your ears and stop hearing the quad bike or hearing anything. That's one way of doing it, I suppose, but that's called avoiding. That's not called investigation. The other way is to have, but to have with mindfulness. What happens when a quad bike goes by? It's just a sound. It's not, it's not like you know, somebody sticking pins into you or something. It's just a, a little noise. And, but if we don't have mindfulness, what happens is we cling to it. We get caught up in it. And so having without having is the skill and it requires mindfulness and the um, opportunity for that is is always there again until we die or until we're dying we can always bring mindfulness to the situation that we're in and and investigate what happens what happens when we don't have mindfulness like Ajahn Chah talking about opinions and views about how things should be and talking to some of the abbots about the way monasteries are these days, the, uh, the uh, sense of being idealistic. You get a lot of people... When I joined the monastery, it was a generation of a bunch of old hippies off the trail kind of just managed to call into the monastery and thankfully Ajahn Chah took us under his wing and, and tidied us up and that was very nice. But these days, people joining the monastery, they often been studying Buddhism for years and read the scriptures and been doing loads of meditation retreats, been doing therapy and a whole different batch of applicants joining the monastery from our generation and I noticed that a lot of them are very idealistic. They, and I'm not talking about a, uh, a, a kind of precise philosophical definition of idealism, I'm talking about uh, the common everyday use of the word, idealistic, we're living in a world, living in a, a vision of how the monastery should be. They've read the scriptures and they've got this idea of how the monastery should be. And boy, are they ever disappointed to the point where you see on the introductory notes, everybody who joins the monastery now gets, it's pointed out to them, this is a living community, this is not something out of a book. You can read all the scriptures, you can have idealistic notions about how life should be, but reality is often very different. And what's the problem there? Well, the problem's not with having ideals. Ideals are great. Being able to have ideals gives us a vision and we can improve ourselves. We can compare with how things are, with how things could be. We can extrapolate based on the past. It could be like that in the future. And we create these ideals and they give us an orientation in life, which is wonderful. But what happens if we cling to the ideals, then we're never peaceful. So clinging is the problem, not the ideals themselves. Opinions are not the problem. It's clinging to opinions is the problem. Having is not the problem, it's how we have. If we have with mindfulness, with awareness, then there doesn't have to be a problem. Comparing also, these days you listen to the conversations in, in our monasteries that we have, move around from one monastery to the other and you hear the young monks comparing this monastery, that monastery. And I remember when we didn't have anything to compare with, it was a lot more peaceful. In the early days in Chitters, we only had one monastery. There was nothing to compare it with. 
a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, uh, beginner's mind, pioneer culture, and a lot of focus and commitment and willingness to serve, to really give up you know, my way to serve the community. We wanted this thing to succeed. And these days, well, there's all these, oh, I don't think I'll be in this monastery. They work too hard. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm not going to go to that monastery because they don't have soy milk in the evening. That one there looks good. They've got lots of cooties. I think I might go there. Oh, no, actually, I don't like the abbot. I think I'll, I'll try that one. That abbot, he's a bit... He's not very available, I don't think. That one over there, he's really nice. Yeah. But I think he spends too much time on the internet. I don't think I'll go there either. I think I'll just give up. That'd be much better. Compulsive comparing is a problem. Mindful comparing is great. Yeah. Compare our gas bill with the neighbours. How come the neighbours' gas bill is much lower than ours? We compare, and then we ask them. And then based on the information, we change our gas supplier. That's helpful. Mindful comparing, but compulsive comparing is unhelpful. Extrapolation. You know, in the past, I saw that rope, and I thought it was a snake, and I freaked out and ran away only to be told that it was a piece of rope. And in the future, the next time I see a piece of rope, I'm going to, this is using an example from the scriptures, yeah. I'm going to restrain my reaction, mindfully consider, oh, maybe it's a piece of rope, maybe it's not a snake. Yeah. So and then we extrapolate in the future, and that's beneficial. Yeah. Compulsively extrapolating, based on... Memories from the past, we imagine the future. Compulsively, we never settle. We end up worrying the whole time. What if this? What if that? There's no contentment. But it's not extrapolation that's a problem. It's not comparison that's a problem. What is it? It's the compulsiveness. The compulsiveness, the, the clinging, uh, the lack of mindfulness. And this is true in our personal inner life, socially, outwardly, all the isms of the world, you know, communism, you know, got some great ideas going for it, you know, community awareness and fairness and all that, but you know, what a disaster as a social experiment communism was. Egalitarianism, although it's quite popular, equal rights is a good idea, but if we cling to it, if we grasp it, we're looking at the wrong thing. The ideal is there to give us an orientation in our life, but if we cling to it, we spoil it. The ideal may be great. The comparison may be great. The opinion may be great. The opinion might be right. But if we cling to it, we end up in a fight. Yeah. So with mindfulness, it doesn't have to be that way. Some of you may have heard of that story in the scriptures where... Apparently the Buddha was uh, exceedingly good-looking and uh, handsome and radiant and this, is, this young monk was just sitting there staring at him. You know how beautiful this, the form of the Buddha was and the, the Buddha scolded him. You, you know, you're looking in the wrong direction. The form of the Buddha, it may be beautiful, but what's really beautiful is the spirit, is the Dhamma. So our attention often falls short of reality through the lack of well-developed mindfulness. So when we're suffering like 
again looking at the world and the struggles that people are facing and wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth and what can we do about all this? Well, the very first thing we can do is bring more mindfulness to our experience of it. Should I stop watching television? Somebody rang me the other day and, and said that they just they were fed up with meditation and just wanted to watch television. Was that all right? And I said, yeah, that's all right, so long as you watch television mindfully. You know, it's, it's a good thing to do. You've you got the zapper in your hand there, and so from time to time, just turn the thing off and feel what it feels like. Were you caught up in it or not? So I'm missing something. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, these days, of course, you can put it on pause and you know, you're not going to have to miss anything. But, you know. but the point is to experiment with, mindfully experiment with watching television, so long as what you're watching is not immoral. You know. Having possessions, having a nice house. There's nothing wrong with having possessions, having a nice house, having good friends, but it's how we have them. That's the issue. And so when there's mindfulness, so as, the, as Ajahn Chah was saying, mindfulness is the cause for the arising of self-awareness and wisdom. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.